Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Coming up on this week's show, a CinemaWare classic gets a sequel. The cutest PS2 you've ever seen. And going from retro gaming to working in the industry with Jamie Smith. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books I can highly recommend got it on the shelf next to me right now it is beautiful a gremlin in the works now this is a story of one of britain's best gaming companies from back in the day the tale of gremlin graphics packed with images interviews and lots of reminiscing from the glory days of this legendary games publisher you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 362, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another nostalgic trip back to the glory days of retro gaming. And of course, a podcast that every week brings you up to speed on all the happenings in the world of retro. And you know, retro is pretty wide encompassing, really. That could mean your old Sega and Nintendo games, your, your old PlayStation, your old Commodore 64 it could be the TV shows that you watched back then. It could be the magazines that you read. We cover quite a lot on this podcast. It could be the haircut that you're wearing. You know, I've seen a lot of mullets. To this day. Mullets getting popular again. <laughs> or it could even be the sweets. Like, I, I remember a few years ago, do you remember Toffo? That amazing sweet. Oh. Yeah. I was reading an article the other day, actually, about the like top 10, 15 sweets that we miss. Yeah, and Toffos were on that, the banana one. You ones. know, that was the only time we've been featured on the BBC, was when I bought some Toffo from... I think it was UAE or Dubai. I was about then, to say, I remember you buying some Toffo. The last packet in the world, I remember. The, the problem it, yeah. was I had to buy it in packets of 30, so like 30 packets. So I was I was huge after eating all that Toffo. So, uh, yeah, I mean, not that we cover retro suites very much on this podcast, but there is uh, lots happening in the world of retro tech and gaming and uh, lots of stories to get into in just a moment as well. And uh, we do have a, uh, normally on the podcast, we bring you a guest each week on the show. This week, we're spoiling you. Of course, we've got two guests. Now, let's welcome on our uh, mystery guest. Hello, mystery guest. Hello, Dan. <laughs> now, this is Ash. And anyone that's joined us on our patrons hangout before, I'm sure will be familiar with you, Ash, because you're on there most months. You're also a really big part of the hangout as well. You get really involved in it. And you've been a big supporter of the Retro Hour for a couple of years now. And, uh, you know, we all consider you a friend. And Ash is actually the first person to join us for a brand new feature that we're going to be doing on the show from this month. Roughly once a month or so, we're going to be inviting on one of our patrons to essentially be the fourth host of the podcast. So the idea behind this is, you know, we've done the show for like seven years now, but we've got quite a big international audience. And we thought it might be interesting to get, you know, some different opinions on, some different voices from around the world as well. So once a month, we're going to get on someone different from our patrons community to bring a new story along with them and also give their opinions on the new stories that we talk about as well. So great to have you joining us, Ash. And uh, for people that might not be familiar with you, maybe people that haven't been on the Patreon Hangouts before, give us a bit of your background then in, you know, retro gaming. Where have you kind of come from? 
Uh, yeah, I'm um, I'm uh, an 80s child, so I was brought up with uh, ZX Spectrums. That was my first sort of uh, computer. Um, so uh, moving on from there, moved on to the Commodore Amiga, naturally, <laughs> as, as I think oh, most yes. of us did on here. Uh, Commodore Amiga is probably my main love, just because of the age that I was at uh, when I actually had the Amiga. Uh, and then unfortunately, as most of us did, when the Amiga went through its demise, I moved eventually on to PCs. I've had consoles in between, uh, PlayStation 1, 2, Wii, PlayStation 3, and that's about as modern as I get on consoles is PlayStation 3. I never went beyond that because I basically switched on to PC gaming from there. But I'm a big no. fan of emulation. Uh, still emulate my Amiga. I have an arcade machine with emulation on there. Uh, and I'm, I'm probably one of the big uh, emulation advocates. I know a lot of people don't necessarily like emulation, but for me, it's that perfect compromise. But it's a pleasure to be invited on the show. I'm, I'm really happy that you've invited me. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, so um, I'll try and explain this a bit. We're, we're going to do a feature. So every single month, we're going to have a patron on the show. And uh, the patron's going to actually join us on the news section as well. So Ashley's come along with a story. And he's going to be uh, also dropping opinions in the news. And we're going to hopefully do this every month. So there'll be 12 a year. And, you know, hopefully it will like jazz it up a bit. But also it's really nice to have the patrons on because, you know, we get to speak to them behind the scenes and uh, no one else knows about it. So it's, it's, it's great to kind of get people out there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you are a patron of the show, um, or if you're not already, actually, all the details to join her at theretrohour.com. We'll put a little uh, form in there as well if you'd like to uh, apply to come on. We'll be uh, hopefully picking one a month, like Ravi said. But very nice to have you on, Ash, for our uh, first patron guest. And um, looking forward to talking about the news stories with you in just a moment as well. And then in the second half of the show, that is where we welcome on a industry veteran to give us some of their memories and uh, talk about their story and development. And actually, that is pretty much what we talk about this week with our guest, Jamie Smith. His journey from being a retro gaming fan to actually working in the industry. Yeah, this was a really, really interesting interview and a bit of a different angle um, for us. Doing a lot of different things on episode 362 this week. Um, but yeah, we kind of spoke to Jamie about like, you know, his memories as we do. His journey from, you know, gaming kind of being a hobby and a passion to it becoming his actual career. And he's been in the industry for about 10 years, working on some of the, you know, modern Call of Duty games, Far Cry 4, um, some of the driver games as well. And we kind of talk about his stories there, but then we also get a nice insight on how his, you know, how he got into the gaming industry and, you know, what advice he would give, because he's also a lecturer at university mm. as well. Um, so we kind of hear about like, you know, how he got into doing that and stuff like that and how he kind of got his foot in the door. Um, and we ask him a few kind of like, you know, hints and tips and like what advice he would give himself, you know, if he could go back 15 years and stuff like that. So it was a really, really interesting episode. Um, and it really just kind of like felt like sitting down and talking to a friend about it all and stuff. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I, I love the first bit of the interview when we kind of talked about how he got his Master System 2 and like, you know, anyone that had a Master System 2 spent hours and hours on mm -hmm. Alex Kidd. And then he's told some really interesting stories about how he used to play N64 games backwards. Yeah, he only had. I don't. I don't want to spoil it too much, but for like a year, he only had Diddy Kong Racing. So he used to play yeah. the game backwards <laughs> to keep it interesting. So really, really interesting chat. 
Yeah, and today he works at Sumo Digital. He was at Ubisoft before that as well, working alongside, you know, legends like Martin Edmondson. So we talk all about that as well. And kind of how retro influences his career today. And also he's a big fan of emulation. So I think you'll find this one interesting, Ash. And kind of talking about modding games and stuff Absolutely. too. So, yeah, really nice chat with her. Jamie Smith, uh, he's going to be coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, before we do that, lots of new stories, as always, to get straight into this week. And uh, I don't know if you're a fan of this game back in the day, Ash. Were you a fan of um, Cinemaware games on the Amiga? Uh, the Cinemaware games, yes. Uh, well, particularly um, uh, Defender of the Crown, uh, naturally. Yeah. Uh, but Defender of the Crown was the only one I actually had on the Amiga. Uh, I never actually... Uh, played any of the other games up until more recently on emulation they obviously just couldn't get hold of copies of those particular games or bought them or whatever but there was always something else but defender of the crown obviously was just fantastic in terms of the the artwork and everything else it really sold the amiga so yeah it's um definitely up there with the best of the games i love the cinema wear stuff and i think you know graphically particularly in those early days of the amiga i imagine that you know sold a lot of systems so his graphics were like, you know, well, it was in the name, wasn't it? Cinemaware. Yeah. They, Very cinematic. They, they had that kind of, yeah, cinematic, stylish look as well. And like uh, a lot of their games had their own identities. And um, this this is a huge one that had its own identity as well. Well, we're talking about um, a game called It Came From The Desert, which is now getting a spiritual successor. I've got to admit, I didn't play this game back in the day, but it does bring back a lot of nostalgia for me because I always remember seeing the adverts for this game in Amiga magazines and it always had those um, giant killer ants in the adverts. Do you remember those? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I remember a lot of hype about it, but I never actually played it as well myself. You know, um, I remember those wonderful copper effects that they had on there. I mean, it was based on a sort of B-movie style, wasn't it? It was those sort of 1950s American B-movies uh, was the, the game. So it was definitely that kind of style with the huge ants and the, you know, the larger-than-life characters, wasn't it? I've got a feeling it was actually it was a movie like before it was a game as well. I think there was actually like a oh. yeah, cheesy B-movie called It Came From The Desert. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, anyone that kind of read, you know, Amiga Mags back in the early 90s will definitely remember those adverts. Because Cinemaware, a massive company, um, went bust in 1991, which is actually quite a bit earlier than I, I thought they went bankrupt. But this was definitely one of their most recognisable games. But now it turns out there is going to be a sequel to this game called it returned to the desert that lands on Steam in a couple of weeks' time. I love how they say it's a spiritual successor. I, I'm guessing it's because of like licensing and stuff like that, but like it is clearly the, like the successor, the sequel to the game. I really like the look of it. Um, and the film I think you're all thinking of is uh, Them, I believe it's called, from the 50s, about the giant ants. Is that the one, the giant ants in, in the desert? Yeah, <laughs> in right, black okay. and white. Um, I've never played this game, but I mean, I'm looking at the trailer for the, you know, the new one, but I really like the look of it. Yeah, it's, it, it looks the graphics like... graphics look fantastic. Mm. Yeah, it looks like it's kind of... It's built for a modern PC system, mm. but it, it's in that real old school look. And yeah. it's it's funny because they've got like, you know, I, I think it's digitization style of the, yeah. of the characters in there. But also it's got this kind of XCOM vibe it, from sections that I've seen. It reminds yeah, me definitely. Of, of the original kind of like, um, I don't know the look of it, like the, the name, if there's a name of it, but you know the original Fallout and the original of Age of Empires, it's got that like, um, that kind of like sh shading to the graphics, like the digitization to it, like you say, Ravi. Um, I think they've really captured that kind of like 
early 90s kind of, I know it was Amiga game, but early 90s Amiga PC gaming kind of look. And it just looks like so much like there's like top-down shooter elements, RPG elements, puzzle elements to it. I'm assuming the original was like that, but I really, really like the look of this. I think that graphically, particularly the tactical sections, they've got like the guru shading that you used to have in the early sort of MS-DOS games. Mm. Uh, but I was looking at it and I was thinking it's almost pastel type colors as well in it. But I was thinking this could actually be done on a beefed up Amiga. And I, I was thinking that if you had like There's a, a challenge, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking this would be awesome on a, a really beefed up Amiga because uh, I think it'd be possible to do it looking at the graphics. You know, the Amiga was getting to that kind of point in its later years of its life. So, yeah, I think that'd be cool if we could do that. You know, today um, as well, we, we often see a lot of games that are now aimed at like, you know, Amiga 1200s with eight megabytes of RAM because that kind of setup's affordable now, isn't it? You know, if you've got an Amiga or you can emulate it. So it's yeah. not really the problem that it was back in the nineties. It's got it's got a funny vibe in there as well. Like there's obviously these mini games and these like above view sections. And to me, one of them looks really like Theme Hospital mixed yeah. with kind of Hotline Miami. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's got like that kind of <laughs> indie indie look to it as well. Um I'm sure if they yeah, you're right. If they did an Amiga version, they'd have to strip down the palette and they'd have yeah. to remove stuff like shadows and stuff like that but it's possible yeah and i think this is quite cool that uh it's actually coming out and it's uh, uh developed by a guy called tim radshaw yeah i don't think it had anything to do with the original um i looked him up it looks like he's only worked on games over the last decade or so and whether it's got anything to do with cinemaware i'm not really sure i've got a feeling like you said joe that is kind of you know if i said spiritual not, i would suggest yeah. it probably not <laughs> <laughs> yeah not official yeah but um it is going to launch on Steam in a couple of weeks' time, and it's actually up for pre-order right now. So if you're a fan of that back in the day and you love that kind of 90s um, RTS kind of style, definitely worth a look in. I'll uh, put a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, it seems every week we're talking about um, genius modders in the retro community who are doing unthinkable things with retro hardware. And actually, this comes along at quite a good time because um, over the weekend I was kind of tidying up my office as I tend to do every weekend, because um, I don't know how it happens, but over the course of a week, it ends up looking like a bomb's hit my office and it needs a complete tidy up every Saturday. But I was moving around a, uh, a couple of PlayStation 2s and I picked up my, my fat PS2 and I thought, oh, that's a bit of a chunk. <laughs> you know, with a disk drive in there, I thought it's heavy. I thought, I bet if they made that today, a modder or someone that was working on a PS2 today could make that a lot more compact and a lot lighter. And then, lo and behold, this comes along. I was gonna... The PS2... Ultra slim. I was literally about to say, well, I've got the answer for you, Dan. <laughs> so, yeah, as you say, PS2 Ultra Slim. Um, this has been made by an engineer um, named Wesk. Now, I was reading about this and I was like, is it actually a PS2? Is it just a Raspberry Pi in a box? Um, but it, it isn't. Luckily, it is actually a PS2 in there. So it's tiny. It's to kind of give like the listeners like an idea. It's the width of the two controller ports. And then it's probably only, in terms of the depth, it's probably about the size of a PlayStation controller, but square, obviously. Um, I really like the look of this. And I think, like you say, Dan, like this would be like something they'd come up with now if they released it as like a modern mini console. Um, it needs some RGB in it, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's missing <laughs> a few things. But, you know, I really like the look of it. Obviously, it's like a 3D printed model. And it essentially, it like you say, it doesn't have a disk drive. So it, it is playing the games off an SD card, um, but internally it is still a PS2. It is still the PS2 motherboard, which has been cut to fit. 
He takes one of the USB ports off because it won't fit into the case otherwise. Ah, that's a USB port. Okay, so from what I see, like, you know, the actual controller ports and stuff at the front, he says the size of them were quite huge mm. as well. But he's not, he's not like divided it in half like the Wii ones, you know, where oh, they... Oh, no, he, he takes about an inch section off, just literally the USB just ports. Just a trim, just a trim yeah. on the edge. Yeah. Trimmed it to size. And he's put a fan in there, obviously, because that's going to be... A, an issue as well getting a, a bit of overheating and stuff but i really like the idea of this transparent case as well yeah do, it's do, cool. it's do gorgeous, you guys uh remember when they used to have these modded ps2 fat ones that had top loaders on them so um you'd load oh, the swap trick yeah yeah instead of loading the disc from the uh tray you'd have like a one that you lift like on a cd32 or something like that i don't i don't remember that there was a uh, weird did, scene for there it. There were literally people that took like a hacksaw to their, their PS2 just so they could do the swap trick and uh, put like a, yeah, a lid on there, um, which actually would be quite easy to do if you had a transparent top. You could kind of see what was going on in there. I'll I tell you one like thing this. I do like with it, though, the, using the SD card to actually load uh, the games on. Because, I mean, mm. I, I have in my modded PS2, I have a hard disk in um, mm. and run off that using yeah. you know, frame, frame at boot and everything else. But obviously, that's a little bit more clunky. It's a little bit less easy to swap and transfer files and everything else. I like the idea of the SD card. I think that would be a really good mod in general. You know, just to be able mm. to do rather than do the hard disk one. Yeah, you know, so. I'm I'm not too sh- too familiar with it, but it's apparently it's an MX4 SIO mod, which is, it's that thing we talked about last year. You know, where you can use the, where uh, the, you, do the it controller, the, you do it the into the memory, memory card yeah, slot, memory don't you? So it, essentially, it's mm. that, but it's it's on the inside rather than through the memory card slot, and then it's just got an SD card slot, you know, on the outside of the actual ultra slim PS2 itself. Um, but that's why, at first glance, I was just like, "Is this just a Raspberry Pi in a case yeah. with you know PlayStation ports on it?" But yeah, it you were expecting that big fat hard drive mod at the back, yeah, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff, so yeah. the same size as the PS2s uh, yeah. that you slim down, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that is one issue, you know, a slight issue with this, I guess. You know, the MX4 SIO is only about six months old, I think, so mm. it's still kind of been worked on, and they do say that there are still some games mm. that won't work with Will it. Will you be able so to do mean... DVDs as well, like r- rips of DVDs on there? So no, just drive. But yeah, 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 maybe with this, uh, yeah, load them up as an ISO or something. Yeah, I can't see why it wouldn't work. Yeah, so I mean, it's really cool, I think, and it kind of reminds me of, it is very nostalgic for the early 2000s when, I don't know if you guys were the same, I had loads of transparent electronics, Trans- and I remember having a... Transparent phones. Yeah, I had a see-through purple phone. Yeah, in my uh, have my you seen university. this trend recently in America? People are collecting like prison technology, so they have like prison TVs and the prison oh, TVs. Oh, Te- are... did videos, didn't he, on it? Um, yeah, they're like transparent, so, so the guards yeah. can see through them. You know, uh, so nothing's stored inside there. And now people have started to collect them. So uh, this this might work in prison. This small little one. <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that. <laughs> the PS2 Ultra Slim coming to a cell near you soon. Um, and luckily, he's put all the uh, you know the 3D models and everything you can download if you're uh, if you're feeling a bit brave and you want to trim down your your PlayStation 2 motherboard. You can make your own at home. So I'll uh, put that in our show notes as well. Now, back in the 80s, you mentioned Ash. You were a specky boy back in the day. Um, I was a Commodore boy, but you know we get on well. No bad <laughs> yeah. blood or anything. These days, no, it's all school, schoolyard rivalries. <laughs> but um apple wasn't all that big here in the 80s i remember using a a macintosh probably in around 
1988-89 at my auntie's print shop, and that was the first time I'd ever laid my eyes on anything Mac. And really it wasn't until God, I went to university, you know, like the, the early 2000s that I regularly started using Macs, got my first Mac, I think, in around 2001. So um, I've been a big Apple fan for over 20 years now, but haven't got a lot of experience with the Apple Lisa, but I do know that that was quite a legendary machine in terms of really the first mainstream machine that had a graphical user interface on it, didn't it? Yeah, it was it, it was an interesting machine because it was very expensive. So I think yeah. I've only ever seen one Lisa. Um, it was it was released at uh, twenty seven thousand uh, dollars. Well, that's, In that's money, the that equivalent. Be, yeah. yeah, so it it yeah. was ten thousand uh, US back then, but still for for, for a machine as well. Um, I'm not sure it was massively successful. You know, only 10,000 units were sold. And the reason we're talking about this is um, the Apple Lisa has actually celebrated its 40th birthday this month. And the Lisa's quite interesting. Have you guys ever seen the movie called um, Pirates of Silicon Valley? Oh, yes. No, yes, one of my favourite movies. No, I still not watched it yet. God, really, you guys, you need to watch that. It's out of all the tech movies. It's so good. Yeah, call yourself geeks. Yeah. <laughs> goosebumps that that gives me yeah, yeah it, it is awesome and it's kind of the story of um basically microsoft and apple up until i think it came out in around 98 didn't it 98 99 so it's that era where it kind of stops you know it's kind of steve jobs is going back into apple um before the ipod and everything but there's actually quite an interesting bit in there about the lisa and you might be wondering why it's called the lisa but um apparently steve jobs had a, a daughter called lisa who he didn't admit was his daughter at the time when this machine came out, so he's like, you know, no, no, I haven't got a daughter or anything. Then he brings out this machine called the Apple Lisa, and this girl who claims to be his daughter is called Lisa. Bit of a coincidence. Yeah, later on in life, they kind <laughs> yeah, of... Yeah, he admitted it later. They, they made up and, and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it was interesting because at the time he actually said, no, it's it stands for something else. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's There's very, some weird psychology weird, going on there. It was, it was kind of before the Macintosh period as well. So it really bridged that, you know, Apple II into into Macintosh era and a lot of the stuff um with the Apple II that was you know in there like expansion and and the idea of being able to add extra cards and expand uh you know that really changed it and that led to today's kind of idea of Apple where you know it's not really expandable it's it's a closed kind of system and uh you know if you want it repaired you'll send it off to Apple and get it done and it kind of changed that philosophy I must admit, though, looking at the you know the screenshots of the uh, graphical user interface, I mean, it's you can see you know the modern uh, operating systems there. It's it's got all the key elements. You can see where everybody took the inspiration. Yeah, uh, and, and from, famously, you know, that was from Xerox as well. So they'd taken inspiration for this <laughs> they nicked it. from Xerox and then put it in their machine, and then that got nicked, and you know it went around around the houses. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was saying here about Xerox Star System, which was the competitor, or at least Apple were co- trying to compete with, uh, was seventy five thousand dollars from the same era so that would be a quarter of a million with inflation these days so although we said it was an eye-watering price it's actually you know competitively way cheaper than its its nearest rival so yeah yeah. which is probably a reason that you know they never really took off over here because you know we were buying like you know zx81s and spectrums 
<laughs> at that point for like less than 100 quid. We're in the middle so, of a deep um, recession, that's why. We're yeah, we? well, that's the thing. <laughs> hey, early 80s Britain, we weren't forking out 10 grand for a, an Apple computer. But the interesting thing is, I mean, like I said, it had that, I think they called it a wimp interface before GUI caught on, which was um, Windows icons, menus and pointers, I think that stood for. But interestingly, Apple have done something quite surprising because Apple are not normally a company that kind of look back to the past very often, and especially not a company that are known for releasing their source code and putting things out there. But to celebrate the 40th birthday of the Apple Lisa, Apple have actually put the source code for the machine and the operating system available for the public to download. That's that's really interesting, yeah. A lot of people, you know, kind of hide their source codes and are scared of them leaking and stuff. But to put it out gets gets a little bit of extra attention and i guess it's not very relevant to any of the modern apple stuff as they totally changed you know architecture and also changed the os so yeah this is really cool sadly you can't do it in a vm as well but um hopefully you know someone will will create something that you can kind of use or maybe maybe we'll see a a new version of the lisa operating system after this upgraded with uh other os features chucked into there I was just thinking, I mean, obviously the Lisa was uh, based on the 68,000 processor. So in theory, from an emulation point of view, it should be quite achievable. I so, think there are Lisa emulators out there that yeah. you can you could run this on already. Um, but I think the interesting point there, you mentioned, you know, could, could someone make a new operating system? We did see that brand new Com- Commodore 64 OS yeah, that came yeah. out commercially a couple of months ago. And, you know, the Commodore 64 celebrated its 40th birthday last year. So it's not unthinkable that someone could kind of improve on this source code. Or they could do something like chuck this on the Mega Drive or something, which, <laughs> which would be pretty crazy. Get your Apple cart, you know. There you go, Joe, one for you. Yeah, I was going to say that. Will get me. I was going to say, I'm just sat here like, yeah, I don't know anything about this. Put it on the Mega Drive. Yeah, I'll get it. <laughs> where, where do I get Streets of Rage? <laughs> yeah. But the, I mean, the entire source code is 26 megabytes, which everyone's saying is tiny. Actually, quite a lot, I think, for 1983, 26 megabytes. Mm. Um, but then it's all written in, mostly in Pascal, which is obviously not a language that's widely used anymore. But I've been kind of scrolling through it. It's very well commented, though. If you want to go through the source code, there's actually it explains step by step pretty much everything that's going on in there as well. And um, the Computer History Museum have released a code and also written a nice celebration of the machine too. So I think from just a software development point of view, even if you're you're not a programmer and you don't know your way around Pascal, definitely historically interesting to look back on. So that is available now, and I'll put a link to that source code and the article if you want to download it. It's all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this will be a good stage just to mention that this weekend, it is our favourite weekend of the month, Patrons Hangout. Coming up on Sunday night, and uh, you know we, we talk about it every week. How much fun the patrons hangout is! I think actually, you know, just for a, a bit of a different voice and someone who joins us for most of them, it's always a good laugh, isn't it? Hanging out with everyone on a Sunday evening. Oh, absolutely! It's, it's brilliant. I, I don't think my partner necessarily thinks it does because it gets me out of kids' <laughs> duty. But uh, but yeah, no, for me, it's it's. It, I know it sounds cliche, but I do love it. It's the highlight of my month because again, we've been doing it for well. God, how long have we been doing it now? A couple of years. Yeah, about two like. years, I think. And I remember being on the first one that you did. Uh, and obviously, we see people come and go into the group, but it's just getting larger and larger. And, uh, you know, you said it before, Joe, but it, it's true. It does feel like a group of friends now. Uh, oh, yeah. With, you 100%. know, a lot of the people on there. And I've, I, you know, I've made 
uh, sort of personal friends on online and I met a couple in real life as well but through the actual group people that we we talked to on the the actual hangout so from my perspective it, you know I've, I've loved it I've, I've met some really great people now and I've got a bigger community to share ideas with and talk geeky retro stuff and no it's it's fantastic really enjoy it yeah, we always kind of do a bit of a show and tell when new members come on as well. We, you know, geek out about all kinds of things. It can be movies, it can be music, generally all mobile phones and mini displays and that pop up from week to week. But yeah, it's really, you know, once a month we get as many of our patrons as want to join us on a Sunday night for a couple of hours, uh, crack a drink, geek out about all things retro. And uh, that is coming up this Sunday evening from 8pm UK time. Uh, also, we do other stuff for our patrons as well. You get extra news stories each week. We chop all the adverts out of the show as well. And uh, we do a bonus patrons-only podcast for our gold members and above, um, of which we're going to be recording the 30th episode of that, I think, this weekend, the uh, Retro Hour After Hours. So if you join us this weekend on Patreon, you'll unlock all of those and, of course, be able to join us for the Hangout this coming Sunday. And we do have a new member to induct into the Hall of Fame. And uh, I'll let you welcome him on. This week, Joe. Hall of Fame. <laughs> Who we got? We've got a uh, massive thank you to Tom Nevitt. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. Hopefully we'll see you on the Hangout this weekend. And if you'd like to join the Retro Hour patron community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Now, it's great to have you on. Ash is our uh, first patron guest this month. And we did say, you know, if you, if you want to bring a story along as well for us to talk about, you can do. And um, this one has got a bit of bling about it, I think. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so Dan, Ravi, Joe, what, what would you pay for a, a second-hand PSP these days? A second-hand PSP? You know what? Yeah. I, I, I really want to say like 10, 20 pounds, but I, I know they have actually gone back up. I, I think I paid about 40 quid from a charity shop, but there were like a few little broken things on there, like the LED and stuff like that. But I did pay, but that was a bargain, you know, 40 quid. <laughs> So, so generally speaking, when I've looked on eBay, because I've, I've been after one for a little while, um, mostly for retro emulation stuff on them, but 50 to 120 quid-ish on eBay, depending yeah. on how good they are. And when they originally came out in 2005, they were 179 pounds was the uh, retail price on them. So would you be prepared to spend uh, $20,000 on well, a PSP? Mate- Maybe if it was a gold-plated ash. <laughs> <laughs> and owned, owned by Pharrell Williams at one stage. <laughs> so, so yeah, so this is a news story this week. Um, a bit, bit of an off-topic one, but uh, a Canadian rapper Drake, uh, who's just released a, a new music video this week, and uh, some of the eagle-eyed amongst might have seen that he has a rather bling-looking PSP in the music video at quite a few stages. And what he's done is uh, Pharrell Williams, back in 2008, decided he didn't just want an ordinary PSP. So he commissioned a 14-carat gold casing for his PSP. And he also had a custom Goyard case made for it as well. Uh, And in case you're asking weight-wise as well, yes, it did have a significant change. Went from 280 grams, that's a normal PSP, to 660. So I was thinking if you're playing for any long period of time, that's probably going to put some strain on the arms there. But uh, And that's going to add a few quid to the shipping if you buy that on eBay as well. Yeah, there might be some declarations to do as well, I think, getting (laughs) that one uh, imported in. But yeah, so uh, effectively... He, uh, Pharrell Williams must have put this up on an auction site and uh, Drake appears to have bought it. I, um, I guess uh, this is why 
you know, he's gone for 14K, not 24 karat gold, because that would have been even more heavier, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 is, it is interesting because it's like, not that we're going to get onto the whole, like, you know, rappers and feuds and stuff. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they get along. But yeah, apparently, I'm reading in the article, apparently a lot of the, the bling Drake is wearing in this it is Pharrell's that he's bought yeah. off him. But it's from Pharrell's because I thought like, oh, maybe he's skint, like he's had to sell all his stuff. But apparently it's from his own auction house that he runs. So yes, obviously, yeah, Jupiter just, is the one that he, yeah, he has, so, apparently. So, yeah, so he's probably yeah. just sold it just to make some money or whatever, or they could be friends and he's using it. I don't really know. But, you know, aside from the fact that it's like, oh, yeah, he's using a gold, it's a gold PSP. But it's just interesting that Drake's waving. I'm watching the video now and. You know, it doesn't just like show up once; like it's literally in his hand. Like, oh, it's a few times, yeah. Yeah, he's and like, I, I think I think this is one of the things I thought with this is we're getting into the realms of celebrity chic now. Retro gaming is becoming like so mainstream now that even the celebrities are wanting to be seen, uh, you know, with, with the handhelds and retro gaming stuff. So, yeah, I thought I it was think, quite an interesting you know, one. That. It'd be more impressive to me if it was just like a normal Game Boy Pocket or something. Like I'd just be like, <laughs> <Yeah>. what? <laughs> like, I'd be even more random rather than a gold-plated PSP. But it's interesting to see. I tell you what, I would be interested in is uh, has he has he soft modded it? That's what yeah, I yeah. want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Spent twenty grand on it. Has he soft modded it? <laughs> but apparently, Pharrell's also been auctioning his gold at BlackBerry, which sold for forty-five thousand dollars. Apparently, oh, so wow. he's kind of having a bit of a offloading a lot of his retro stuff by the sounds of it. But you know, you mentioned that this features in his new video. There's been quite a few of these sightings that I've seen. One of the weirdest ones, and if you guys saw this on the headlines, um, a lot of the retro sites over the last week, but there's a, an MP in the UK, I think his name is Andrew Gwynn, and he was on ITV News last week, and randomly in the background, if you, if you search this on Google, you'll find it, he had a full setup Commodore VIC-20 oh, <laughs> with a data yeah. set, a joystick, a CRT <laughs> yeah, monitor. You, you there sent that, yeah. yeah, you sent us that in our group chat. Yeah, I, I used to TV. have a, a, a weird relationship with MPs where they would uh, like talk about video games. And I remember one was canvassing in my, in my local area. And uh, I, I met him at the opening of Video Game Museum. And he was like, I was like, I've got an Amiga upstairs. He's like, you got Shadow of the Beast? I was like, yeah, yeah. So he came upstairs and then uh, started playing on it. And then I had this massive bang on the door. And they were like, it was his whole press team. And they were like, where's the MP gone? And <laughs> I was like, oh, he's upstairs playing Amiga. I'll just go grab him. <laughs> so it could there's, be- there's a lot more like people in politics that love it, playing He lost video the election games. that year after that. Yeah. <laughs> he it, did it actually. <laughs> Could have been worse. Could have been the security detail breaking the door down, couldn't it? You know? Yeah, true. <laughs> After you put your new front door on as well, Ravi, that would have been a disaster. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, v- very interesting. Want to check out that video and the, the story as well. I'll stick that in our show notes as well. Uh, just one quick story to talk about as well. And uh, actually, we're going to be covering more on this over the next few weeks. But this is very cool. We're talking about the um, Return to the Desert sequel before. And this is another classic game from the late 80s. It's now getting a – this one looks like an official sequel – and this is a game called Shadowgate. Now, I don't think any of us guys have actually played Shadowgate before, but this was a uh, 1987 dungeon crawler. And I'm going to be digging this game out this weekend, I think, because it looks really cool. And dungeon crawlers were always a genre that, for some reason, I just didn't massively get into them. I loved hired guns on the Amiga. That game was brilliant. But I think I could it never is definitely a genre it. I'd like to explore more. <laughs> really? Too scary. 
No, no, I just, uh, again, I, I wasn't massively into dungeon crawlers. I mostly fired yeah. up high guns for the music. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but high guns was creepy, though, because you heard the uh, the monsters kind of rustling yeah. around in the bushes and those footsteps and a oh, very creepy game. But um, this one, more than 30 years later, uh, there's going to be a new version of Shadowgate. It's a sequel called Beyond Shadowgate. Now, quite interestingly, actually, you notice that there has been another game released with that title. Yeah, when I was having a look, because as, as you said, I'm the same as you, Dan, I, ne I never played the original. So I was doing a little bit of research on it. And again, Beyond Shadowgate was actually a, a genuine sequel or a genuine part of the uh, the you know the uh, franchise. But it was released on the TurboGrafx-16 in 1993. So, mm. uh, and apparently it was a side-scroller. So it completely changed the entire genre that it was uh, from. So I don't know much about that. But I, I just thought it was curious because I, I wondered why there were two Beyond Shadow Gates. But obviously, this is uh, maybe this is what he's envisaging that one should have been. I'm not sure. It looks great, though. And I think graphically, again, it kind of sticks to that. You know, you could imagine this could have come out maybe about 94, 95 mm. in terms of the graphics on this trailer. It, it has that Amiga look to Dungeon Crawlers from that period. Uh, definitely, mm. it's uh, mind you. I say that you know the the PC ones at the same time looked roughly the same as well. But uh, obviously, my experience was more with the Amiga ones at that period. And Shadowgate, I think it was originally a Mac game, but it did have a version on the Amiga and the Atari ST that were you know, obviously in color on those machines because the Mac was monochrome at that stage. But they're saying that um, this has got the one of the original programmers who was uh, behind. Shadowgate, hopefully going to have the podcast um, have on the show in a couple of weeks' time, Dave Marsh. And this is going to be launching on Kickstarter in uh, the middle of February. And he reckons this game is going to be kind of taking it beyond the original game, hence the name, I guess. Um, four times bigger than the original, more than 180 rooms to explore, and over 100 puzzles to solve. Although I do like the fact that he's put some modern conveniences in there as well because i mean and if you guys are the same sometimes if you go back to games from the you know particularly that era in the 80s it was kind of a before a lot of gameplay mechanics were worked yeah, out they could, really i mean they could, dungeon crawls were very hardcore genre they you know, could be pretty uh, brutal i do remember a lot of my friends playing dungeon crawlers with a notepad at the side mm. you know <laughs> so they'd actually like write down where they were going or you know, Mind you, that was that was half the fun, though, wasn't it? Mapping yeah. out and working out with a pen and paper, you know, graph paper at the ready, wasn't it? So, <laughs> and I, what I like about this as well is the interface looks really nice. Um, uh, there's like an edging on it; it's kind of framed. You know, the, the the window size is quite small, and each room that you're in, it's kind of reflected that um, on the side, which is really nice. And it looks like it's got a different interface to what you usually used to. It, it kind of feels a bit like a card game. And I think, you know, a lot of those games back then, I mean, did kind of have similar interfaces. Remember like Dungeon Master on the um, Atari ST? I remember it was always one of the standout games on the ST. I don't think it came out on the Amiga originally, but I think there has been like a, you know, port of it in recent years. But yeah, it's a genre I've always found really interesting. And it's, you know, there's definitely something very atmospheric about dungeon crawler games. They kind of feel quite close to kind of, D and D and that kind of era of gaming, mm. doesn't it? It kind of it harks back to that quite a lot. Yeah, I don't know if if it's going to be in the game, but in the trailer that I watched, the music sounds very NES, uh, and it's mm. actually quite cool. I do I do like the soundtrack on it. So it's it's kind of a strange mixture because the graphics look very Amiga and the music sounds very NES. 
So it's kind of like a little bit of a mixture of the two. So I, I kind of hope it is going to be that music. And it seems it, to be, a, cool. you know, they seem to be paying attention to details. So they're saying there's stuff like a cloth map, which uh, is included. You know, I heard a lot of them would have like cloth maps or you'd have like an item mm. that would come with it. They've got a coin for collectors and stuff. Yeah, they're going to be doing quite interesting, like an NES style Beyond Shadowgate cartridge as well, which uh, I don't know if that actually plays in anything or whether it's just a collectible item. But yeah, and, and one thing that's very, very cool in here for fans of gore, um, 180 different types of death to see in the game as well in those glorious graphics. So, Sounds uh, like a title of a book. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So it's going to be um, on Kickstarter on uh, February the 18th. And um, hopefully it's going to be a little uh, demo that you can try on Steam very soon as well. So we'll keep an eye on that and keep you posted. And uh, you can read more about that and uh, pre-order it right now. Get, get a little update on when the Kickstarter is going to launch. I'll put all the stories in your podcast app or you can head to our website, theretrohour.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Ash. It's been uh, wonderful to have you on as a guest host this week. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for um, uh, helping me and supporting me with it as well. I was a little bit nervous about coming on, but no, it's been it's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed ah, it. So thank you, you for the opportunity. It. We're sacking Joe now. We're getting you on again next week. I know. I've put that, I've put that in the chat. Put, don't sack me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been lovely to have you on, and hopefully we'll see you on the uh, on the Hangout on Sunday. Yep. You and uh, next, we're going to talk to this week's special guest, getting some stories about his uh, retro memories from the Master System and the N64, going into working in the industry at Sumo Digital and Ubisoft with our special guest, Jamie Smith, and he's next on the Retro Hour podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and let's get on this week's very special guest. Always our favorite part of the show when we get someone on to give us their story of how they got into the industry, the games they've worked on, and of course, get really nostalgic about their journey and their early days in gaming as well. And let's welcome on our guest this week has worked for companies like Ubisoft. He's now the principal game designer at Sumo Digital. And we're going to talk about his old school memories of gaming as well with Jamie Smith. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Yeah, nice to chat to you both. I appreciate being on. Yeah, really nice to uh, take some time to chat to us about kind of what got you into gaming and the projects that you've worked on as well. Um, and it was amazing. You actually reached out to us last week and uh, you mentioned that you listened to um, our podcast on your early morning walks. So it's, it was nice to chat to people that listen to the show. 
Yeah, that's it. You're the, you're the voice of 6am. So I'm up every single day. I listen to it. I've got a whole kind of backlog of playlist. And uh, yeah, I just run through. I've, I've been running through different episodes most recently. The uh, the Games Master ones, you know, Dominic Diamonds, mm. Dave Perry. That was a really early episode. And just the odd, odds and sods of the kind of the latest ones. I've not necessarily listened to them in order, but uh, yeah, I've, mm. I've got them all backed up on the playlist ready. Oh, fantastic. Well, um, you'll know then if you listen to the podcast, generally, we always like to kind of find out your earliest video game experience and kind of where it all began. I mean, what's your story then? What got you into gaming initially? Yeah, so I think there's kind of two sides to this story. So the first one is uh, randomly, this was when I was four years old. So again, show my age now, this is 30 years ago. Uh, My mom and dad bought a Sega Master System 2. So that was the kind of classic slightly rounded version as opposed Mm. to the blocky type had the two joysticks with it and it was the version that had um alex kids uh built in in miracle world and and i I seem to remember that might be in the first game that i ever remember playing but the second side to that coin is my parents also had a bunch of friends who had older sons and daughters you know some cousins who all had mega drives and kind of the snes nes at that kind of time so it was kind of dabbling back and forth between you know waiting for ricky lake or oprah on channel four to kind of finish the <laughs> jump jump on the master system or kind of going around their houses and playing whatever games they had but i seem to remember that alex kid was definitely either the first or the first game that i remember playing you know it's really funny my friend dougie he got a um yeah master system two for christmas one year but his parents didn't get many games for like about six months. So the only game he had was Alex Kidd. He was like, he was brilliant at it, you know, after six months of just playing that. But I think that was uh, probably a lot of experience, a similar experience for a lot of people at a master system. Exactly. I imagine it'd be pretty good to say uh, rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny you should say that, because that's actually very similar to kind of like my, you know, kind of earliest memories as well. Um, so it was really kind of a bit of a nostalgia flashback there. But me and my brother were idiots and we actually thought the Mega Drive, sorry, the Master System 2 was like, newer than the Mega Drive. So we had a Mega Drive and a cousin of ours had the Master System and we really wanted a Master System because it had Alex Kidd built in. Um, so he took me down memory lane there as well. But um, you grew up in Middlesbrough. Was there was there much of a gaming scene there? Was there any lo- local arcades you used to frequently go to or any game shops you'd go to? Yeah, I mean, the, there was a couple of places. You always had that classic thing of, you know, the chip shop with the old, mm. you know, Galaxian in the corner or something like that. But um, it's we, we still have it to this day. It's called the Hollywood Bowl. It's just outside of Middlesbrough. It's, it's yeah. in what's called Teesside Park. And you've got just in there the big arcades. It's kind of a bowling alley. And it's also got lots of kind of retro games or what were retro games at the time. Mm. Um, you know, that, I, I can't remember some of them that were there, but maybe the Outrun was definitely there. I can't remember too many. Ridge Racer, did you play that there? I, I used to go in there and play Ridge Racer. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that you mentioned it. And then over time, that slowly morphed into kind of the, you know, the, the crazy taxi kind of Dreamcast era, you know, the Mortal Kombats, um, th- those kind of games. But I definitely remember going, playing a lot of Outrun, playing a lot of Mortal Kombat. And I wouldn't necessarily say that there was a big scene. You could always get on the games, but mm. if it was a winner stays on, you might get the odd kid kind of comes by and says, you know, do you want to take a my Sub-Zero or I'll fight you with Raiden, you know, kind of thing, a Mortal Kombat. Uh, but yeah, not not huge scene for the arcades otherwise. Did you ever go over to, because, um, you know, I, I lived in the Northeast um, for many years and um, some holidays, I always remember going over to um, Redcar, which is... Um, uh, a seaside resort, not far from Middlesbrough, actually, where there used to be some great arcades when I used to go there in the mid-90s. 
Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that because uh, from where I am, red, red car is less than a ten minute kind of drive. Um, but mm. w- when I think of red car, and you've got nearby kind of Saltburn as well, they they still have a bit of an arcade scenes now. But it's more about um, you know those kind of two pence machines where you you know throwing lots of coins in, as opposed to mm. you know uh, kind of traditional kind of racing games or bike uh, races. But one thing you do tend to get in all of them is the kind of the the light gun shooters. You know, you're old wanted and house of the dead and you know the old um die hard games and things like that you know uh point blank so tell us about your you know your kind of journey with so you started with the master system too um what did you get after that you know were you a big fan of like the snares the n64 did you ever have a game boy game gear or anything like that yeah so i transitioned through a few consoles i had a master system probably until 97 ish so maybe i had it for five or six years or so 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 i had it for a long time and Mm. i should say you know uh, cards on the table is i've never until this day and even now actually still haven't owned myself a playstation um the the original (laughs) playstation and the reason i mention that is because my uncle's got it in his loft an original one and he put it away and just said it's yours whenever you want it and just i've never took it (laughs) back off him an original (laughs) kind of intact uh kind kind of model uh but what i do remember is i went to a game station i think at the time and me and my sister we pulled up what little money we had in our bank accounts sold all of our master system games of which we had 40 of them you know pilfered from market stalls over the years for five pound each and things got an n64 and much like you said there you bought a console that didn't necessarily have any games i knew someone uh either n64 and only diddy kong racing for probably at least a year and a half and you're going back to a time when the games were 50 pound each mm. you know you were lucky if you got a game for christmas maybe one for your birthday and then slowly but surely i started amassing a collection on n64 started kind of hunting for bargains in different trading shops uh, around uh, i always remember the first game i ever bought second hand was two rock one uh, two rock dinosaur hunter mm. and uh, finding that for 15 pounds was like a miracle considering mm. at the time all the games were you know, forty pound each. Um, but yeah, I mean, I amassed quite a collection with the N sixty four. But otherwise, you know, going from from a master system to an N sixty four, what did that feel yeah. like? That's a big jump. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I did the same thing when you go from a, an iPhone three to an iPhone, you know, ten or something. It, it's it's <laughs> it, it's pretty crazy. Um, I, th- I think I had a lot of friends that had Mega Drive, SNES, PlayStation. I didn't know anyone with a Saturn, so I'd managed to experience a lot of those kind of games, but never necessarily owned them outright. But to jump from 2D, you know, it was 8-bit graphics to 64-bit kind of 3D, it was like an absolute game changer, especially when um, something like, you know, Banjo-Kazooie come around. And that was the closest thing you had to probably an open world game at that time. And Ooh. to go from kind of this side-scrolling kind of platformer in Alex Kidd to Banjo-Kazooie in the space of, you know, nine months is is pretty crazy. And I think at that time, that probably opened my eyes to what was possible in not only games, but, you know, maybe it's one of the first steps towards, you know, potentially a career in games as well as to, you know, what kind of things could be possible. Because um, just, just as an aside... When, when you're working on that, when you're playing the master system, I never used to think that games were made by people. I think they mm. just used to be magical things that just appeared on mm. the screen. Yeah. And then by the time you get into the N64 era, you're getting some kind of names in the credits that you'd see before the start of the game. You start to realize in Games Master Magazine that there's people behind this kind of stuff. So I think that was the thing that it kind of impacted upon me more than the jump in kind of the graphics or the gameplay. Joe mentioned the Game Gear as well. I mean, were you a handheld fan? Did you ever have like a Game Gear or 
Game Boy? Yes, I, I had a I had a Game Boy, and that was for most of my time that I had a Master System. I had a Game Boy as well, and again, it was more about just amassing a big collection of lots of different games and trying different things out. But uh, yeah, the quick an- anecdote that I had about the Game Gear is. Um, my, my friends or some neighbours used to have consoles and if they ever went away on holiday uh, for, for a week or so, they maybe would borrow it to me. And the only thing I re- ever remember about the Game Gear is not necessarily playing the games, but I remember a hot summer's day, I left it in our kind of garden room uh, with the giant magnifier attachment that used to be on it. And I remember going outside, maybe we were having a barbecue or something, playing in the garden, and I came back in and it set fire to my slippers. And that's the only thing I remember <laughs> about about the game gear uh, otherwise. Wow. Well, at least it didn't burn your house down, though. That could have been bad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, they were only, I say it was on fire, you know, they were pretty singed, but they, those, those, those were a dangerous object. You know, you wouldn't see a wee come with that kind of warning these days. No, absolutely not. <laughs> well, you mentioned Games Master magazine as well. I mean, you know, in terms of thinking back to the, the 90s, uh, you know, how we consumed gaming media, you know, before like the days of YouTube and everything. I mean, were you, were you watching TV programs like Games Master and what magazines were you reading? What was kind of the... Um... Yeah, at that, at that time, if, if you know, I've said this earlier just off air, but, you know, a big influence on me was Games Master at the time, not just the TV show, but as I said, listening through the podcast and going back through various episodes with, you know, Dom and Dave. Um, I used to, at the time, the, mag- the, the TV show got me onto the magazine and I was probably reading the magazine from, you know, those kind of formative years, you know, six or seven to maybe 13, 14 or something, you know, potentially when I start transitioning to, you know, the Edge magazine and a few others. Um, but, but I think those early ones, one of the things I, I used to like was not just the the kind of the, the game reviews or the, the looking at the import scene, you know, looking at things that were in Japan, some of these games that you might never see the light of day. But uh, I've still got the snippings, the snippets now and the, the kind of the cuttings. But there was a section that was in Games Master, which was about games jobs. And it was uh, interviews with a lot of rare people, I think. So from the rare studio, artists, designers, animators, testers. And basically, I'd managed to snip out from the magazine and cut out all of the types of jobs that they did and how they got their jobs, you know, what was their backgrounds. Uh, I always remember that the, the art person that used to work on the rare games was an ex-jeweler. So they used to do something with jewellery and then basically got the job because he could make th- effectively 3D jewellery. And then that's how he got the job on kind of some rare games. And I've got the, kept those cuttings. And I think, again, the other takeaway from that is that was another point in time where I started to think that, you know, games could be a possibility of a, a career at some point and then slowly but surely start to transition down that path uh, eventually. So uh, before we get down that path, because I've got plenty of questions to ask you about that and your kind of journey into um, how you kind of got your foot in the door and everything like that, because I think it's really interesting because, of um, you know, it's kind of like in the last 20 years for you, which I think yep. is a good insight for us to kind of see it from that kind of decade as well. But I also read you were quite into your emulation and your homebrews around the early 2000s. What's the story there? Did that kind of like also ignite a passion for retro gaming? Yeah, for definite. Because, you know, you know, I think it all comes back to... Um, you're growing up in the 90s, so I come from a family that's, you know, not necessarily the best off, but, you know, we weren't necessarily flush with cash buying, you know, 40, 50 pound games kind of mm. every single week. And I think by the time emulation comes along, and I was a big fan of the PSP uh, at the time, yeah. as, as with everybody else, you know, everybody probably owned the copy of Spider-Man 2 on UMD and then slowly but surely started amassing a collection of that. And the idea that you could do, well, basically two things on the Vita aside from games, 
One was uh, t- TV shows. So I used to use it as like a travel device. I, I probably must have watched half of 24, you know, the series 24 mm. on, on that, you know, three inch screen or four oh, inch wow. screen or wherever it was. Uh, so a UMD so, disc. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just trying that things out and then trying to, you know, rip videos from online to see what, you know, how that works. Um, and then the other side of it was the emulation side. Just the idea that you could get these large kind of cards at the time. I remember buying a 64 gig cards, you know, way back when. And that was, I think, almost the price of a new console. And yet on that, you could fit, you know, hundreds of these games, you know, at the time that they're all less than a gigabyte kind of each. Mm. Um, and slowly but surely, that that was kind of touching upon you know, what were the games that I missed from the SNES era? Yeah. There's a bunch of PlayStation games that I had played at my friend's house, but I never fully completed them. Yeah. Uh, just a, a slight anecdote on that was we used to play Resident Evil 2 all the time. Oh, wow. Except, yeah. except we didn't actually play Resident Evil 2. We used to play the Resident Evil 2 demo disc that had a 10-minute timer. Oh, so yeah, it was yeah. Always, yeah. So it was always about how far could we kind of get. And then slowly but surely, I think the PSP opened the doors to you know, an insight back into historical games. And then slowly but surely, I started to amass those games myself. So, you know, I give them a tryout and then, oh, actually, I definitely want to play this or maybe I want to collect the entire series mm. and then so on and so forth. So especially with the Metal Gear Solid games and Resident Evil, um, that they're the mm. two that I've, I've definitely went back and played and collected the, the entire series. That's fantastic. I also had the uh, the 10-minute demo for Resident Evil 2 and <laughs> um, did the exact same thing. So that's absolutely brilliant. Um, so kind of getting into the kind of the start of your career. So um, Atomic Planet and uh, Acclaimed Teesside were both local to you. And you ended up doing a summer course with Teesside uh, University while you were in school. How did that come about and what was the experience there? Yeah, it, it was funny because uh, I, I didn't know this, but beknownst to me at the time that, or unbeknownst to me at the time that in Middlesbrough, it had a fairly decent reputation or in the Northeast for making games. And mm. the two studios that you mentioned, at least one of those, I think, was involved with Shadow Man on the N64. Um, yeah. So I started to kind of put two and two together, acclaim T-Side and acclaim, you know, kind of games. Um, so, so that was my first kind of inkling of it being on the on the radar. But then equally... Teesside University was slowly but surely kind of gathering ex-developers or, you know, people kind of helping out. They'd been in the creative industries. They were at the forefront of, you know, 3D technology. And they had a course called uh, Creative Visualization, which has now become what is effectively the games courses that they deliver there. And um, I was in school. I can't remember exactly how it happened. But my mom said to me, uh, there is a two-week course at Teesside University. This was when I was maybe... 13 or 14 mm. and it was a summer course uh go to teesside university and you basically get to mess about in vr for two weeks and i was oh, like wow. yep yeah i was yep. like okay cool I, I don't know where this come from but yeah cool let's have a go look at that so um we went there and uh the the, the only two things i can remember from it was one is they were using 3d programs to model kind of a fuselage for a plane so it was you know 3d models of planes flying into an airport and that was the second part is they'd made a 3d reconstruction of teesside airport in the vr room and you could sit in the cockpit of the pilot seat or you could stand on the runway and watch the planes kind of coming into land Um, and that was basically my first experience of it and at that point you know putting those two and two together there's some local games company with games people and also there's a games course 
or what would become a games course on my doorstep. Um, this is almost like the stars have aligned, you know, following on from the Games Master, you know, magazine snippets as well. Yeah, interesting. You kind of journeyed there from, you know, being a games player on consoles and then getting into the emulation scene. I mean, did you kind of get more interested in PCs? And did that kind of, where did that come from, that interest? Yeah, a, a little bit of both, actually. Um, I Even today, I mean, obviously we're on a PC at the moment, but I'm not a huge PC gamer. I tend to be more console kind of focused myself, but uh, we did have an old uh, kind of PC at the time. I can't remember exactly the specs, but my my uncle used to work in a a computer company in Middlesbrough and it was more uh, general tech and surveillance and communication. So it was not so much about games, but I think he built us a PC and then slowly but surely, my dad's friend used to borrow us a couple of games at the time. I think it was G Police, uh, Champ Manager, 97, mm-hmm. Diablo 2, a couple of others. And then slowly but surely, it was, oh, you can do not just games on PC and not just, you know, Word documents. You could do this other stuff, which is, you know, booting up a PSP and kind of adding your own music to, you know, Grand Theft Auto or Liberty City Stories or something. So it was more tinkering mm-hmm. than kind of anything else. And then slowly but surely more and more emulators come out and maybe there's an N64 game that you'd not played because it only came out in Japan and it's, you know, £150 to kind of import. Do you want to try it out? Or this particular version of a game, you can try it out, but it's got a better frame rate. And that was the big complaint, you know, back in the 90s or something. So, so slowly but surely it was more about just a general interest in kind of tinkering with things. And that's progressed on to, you know, even... even just last week, uh, hacking open my Steam Deck to swap out the internal storage. So I've, I've done that on a couple of consoles and I've managed to restore a PS3 in the past and things. So I'm a bit handy with general kind of electronics, but just general um, tinkering with things more than anything else. You didn't used to um, like solder mod chips into your consoles and that back in the day then, did you? Uh, n- n- not that stage just yet. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, recently <laughs> my eyesight's kind of dipped down as well, so I probably wouldn't yeah. trust myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, at this point, kind of like going through your history, you know, you've, you've messed about on VR for two weeks at kind of 13, 14. Is this the point where you start thinking, you know what, you know, I'm big into my games. This isn't so much of a hobby. Maybe I can do this as a career. What what was your kind of next step from there then? You know, you figured out that you've got all this stuff on, you know, on your doorstep. You go to college, you go to uni. What kind of happens there? Yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, so it was probably that 14 year old kind of formative stage where, you know, you start chatting to the careers advisors at school and they'll they'll mention the kind of the standard jobs that you could do. You know, you could go to the army, you could go to police, you could become a teacher and things like that. And it's not to say that those things didn't appeal to me, but they weren't necessarily pushing the kind of the creative kind of digital agenda. And I, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily just mean games, but I mean, you know, website building and a bunch of other stuff that was kind of happening at the time. And uh, again, I, I don't remember too much about it other than, I started researching some local kind of colleges, some local universities. I had a look at Teesside, obviously, because it was on the doorstep and also did the games course. And I think I kind of worked backwards from that. So the idea being to get into Teesside, you needed a certain grade. You needed a certain grade in a certain subject. Okay, what colleges in the local area could I get that particular skill set from? The college that they mentioned at the time that we were kind of supposed to go to the natural kind of path didn't necessarily do that course. 
So then I managed to find, uh, it's got a different name now, but what was called Cleveland College of Art and Design at the time, which a uh, quick quick name drop is that also the same college that uh, Ridley Scott went to. Um, oh, awesome. So, yeah. So, no, nice. Yeah, so uh, I think he was in the Hartlepool campus, but I was in the, uh, the Linthorpe one, which is just in Middlesbrough. And as I said, I just worked backwards from that. And it, I ended up going on a course, which was dedicated course to um, 3D design. And 3D design was a digital kind of software uh, course, which was about making 3D objects, for example, furniture, architecture. A lot of people went on to kind of transport design, to designing cars and vehicles, but equally also making that stuff in real life as well. So if you're making a chair on the computer, you would also build it out of, you know, MDF and plastics and wherever other materials. And as I said, I was quite kind of handy anyway. So did those bits and pieces and then they said after that course is that you would be well-versed ready for a games course or games animation course because there was a lot of software involved. So by the time I got to Teesside University on the games courses, I'd been using a piece of software that a bunch of other people on the on the same degree at the time, the games design degree, had never used that piece of software before. So again, I had a kind of a head start in that sense. But that was all from, you know, kind of a bit of my own research because unfortunately at the time the you know, career's advice probably hadn't caught up to the digital age at that point. Yeah, I, th- I imagine it's different now, but yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, I've got a feeling they kind of had like a textbook back then with kind of kind of approved jobs, and uh, if it wasn't in there, they wouldn't advise you on it, would they? Exactly. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Well, did you um ever get into like programming side of it then, or was it more graphics? What what was kind of your journey there? Uh, a, a little bit both. So. Programming wise, I've done bits and pieces kind of throughout my career. And at the time, you know, you're chatting about emulation stuff. You know, I've been through some kind of BIOS files and, you know, tinkering with XML files and bits and pieces like that. Um, The college that we were supposed to kind of go to, the one that I didn't end up, uh, you know, attending, that was one of the courses where I would have probably went into full time programming, you know, wherever it was at the time, C or Lua, you know, wherever the kind of the topic was. but slowly but surely, I just pick things up as I've kind of went. Not only you know, it both in and outside of games, but I was more interested in not necessarily coming up with the ideas. But I used to like tinkering with rule sets. You know, I used to always remember in the N sixty four kind of era, in some of the uh, the magazines they used to have how to get more life out of your games. So I would do things like on Diddy Kong Racing, I would do a lap backwards. And then once I'd done a lap backwards, then I could race for real and then try and win the race. So I used to come up with little rules like that. Or we would have house rules if we played time splitters or, you know, pro evolution soccer or something. So I was more more interested in modifying kind of what was there, tinkering with the rule sets to try and create different challenges for people or new ways of playing. So I was more interested in that side than the particular programming aspect of it that's quite interesting i'd get really annoyed with you because of uh you'd just be you'd be like i'm gonna play it backwards but i'm still gonna beat you <laughs> exactly with, with, with tt the TT the clock. Yeah. so um at this point you're doing your games degree in game design there's the dragon den- dragon's den story there which kind of led to you getting your job as a junior designer at um ubisoft what's the story there and uh, how did that kind of happen yeah, so that that's kind of an interesting one. That it happened towards the tail end of um, my time at university. So this mm-hmm. was maybe I was twenty or twenty-one, um, 
they they had an opportunity for four people, I think, from various kind of games companies to basically come in. Um, again, I forget who the four were, but one was definitely from IDOS. He'd just come off working on the uh, the Tomb Raider franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was more like an indie kind of developer, and then one was a big kind of Ubisoft, you know, um, designer, just come off a, a couple of big games, and there was somebody else. And the idea was is that you could put an idea together for a pitch. So you would put a presentation together, exactly the same as a, a Dragon's Den kind of scenario. You would go into a room, which was at the Malmaison in Newcastle. So that was a free trip to a, an extremely expensive uh, kind of hotel in, in uh, Newcastle to go and pitch to them. And uh, that pitch is probably, I've st- I'm probably still wearing the scars of that pitch uh, because some of the feedback that they give was almost like real world feedback. You mm. know, if, if your ideas can't, kind of weren't good enough or they didn't necessarily see an audience for that kind of thing. Um, however, one of the four people, uh, which is a guy called Mark, Mark Sample, he works for Ubisoft at the time. He saw almost like a light in that kind of idea, a spark, or there's like a little interest, and especially as the spark in kind of me as well. That what happened was I got a bunch of feedback after doing the, uh, those pitches to the Dragons, and maybe six months later, there was a very similar event. This time, it was also Mark again, the same guy, uh, except it was for an internship at Ubisoft. So whoever kind of won this mini competition um, got the internship at Ubisoft. I should say the first one that I did, the the prize was for an Xbox 360. I think it was at the time. Okay. And uh, unfortunately, I missed out on that one. But the second time round, I got a job, which has basically been my career up until this point. <laughs> so it was a, it, it was <laughs> a fair better. trade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the time, your you Xbox probably... would, have, would have red-ringed anyway yeah. after a few months. <laughs> exactly. Probably. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't worth it. It had been good for the six months. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Ubisoft are like, you know, legendary company, been around since the mid 80s, you know, and uh, we know them from, you know, franchises like, you know, Prince of Persia and Assassin's Creed and Far Cry. I mean, we, we are very familiar with kind of the, the studio's work and um, the, the games they published. I mean, did you have any kind of favourites? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the two that come to mind, and, you know, I, I said I'd, I had some anecdotes kind of written down, and I forgot these two, but I'll mention them because they came to mind. The first one is. I used to go to one of my friends' house. We used to play a lot of Xbox. And then when we would jump on PS2, it's one of the only times that I can remember that we uh, rented stuff from Blockbuster. And we rented Mm. uh, what was Ghost Recon at the time. You know, the old, uh, Mm. I think it's like Jungle Warfare or Jungle Assault or something. There's a couple of Ghost Recon games. Later down the line, getting into Rainbow Six Vegas. I I was huge on that at the time when Modern Warfare and uh, Killzone 2 were out. I was a really big fan of that kind of stuff. Um, Not not so much on Rayman. I hadn't really played much Rayman at that point. But the only other kind of anecdote I had is um, I used to play a lot of N64 games. As I said, I had a huge collection. But I used to pride myself on kind of finding the games that nobody else had kind of discovered yet. And one of the games was Book Bumble which is a Ubisoft oh, yeah. game, mm-hmm. the, the flying kind of bee and you yeah, can yeah. do bee football and things like that. And uh, yeah, and it was it was a pretty good game at the time. And then funnily enough, my boss later at Ubisoft, when I was telling her, you know, one day I want us to make Book Bumble again, it was almost tongue in cheek. And uh, she'd been in games for a lot, a lot of years. And it turns out that Book Bumble was the first game that she ever worked on in a professional capacity, oh, wow. which oh, wow. is pretty cool. <laughs> she was the studio manager of the, of the company, so that's pretty cool. There you go, so, a bit, so a bit of sucking up and you didn't even know. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. It's like somebody told me, but I had no idea. Um, yes, and, and that's happened a few times. You know, I've come across people that have worked on the driver games. Um, I remember going to my uncle's, the, the same one he's got his PlayStation in the loft still, 
and he had it in the living room and we used to play Tomb Raider 4 mm. and the driver garage over and over again. And it was kind of like, if you fail, pass the pad on to the next person. And that yeah. driver garage must have sapped an hour and a half from us. And then later meeting some of the programmers that had coded that exact challenge and said, you know, if you're not good enough to beat the garage, you're not good enough to play the game. So tough luck. And, you know, meeting yeah. those people kind of afterwards, uh, it, they had that kind of old school attitude, but then, you know, obviously that softened over the years as well. Yeah. Yeah. God, that driver garage, man. I, I couldn't stand driver because of that. My brother loved it. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. do it at all. So what was the, uh, the culture like at Ubisoft? You know, was it all business or was there fun to be had as well? You know, was it a bit nerve wracking? You probably what 21 22 you know internship at the big at the big boy company yeah that's it that's it i mean i think at the time that was ubisoft reflections i think they'd been owned by ubisoft by maybe uh maybe three or four years at that point Mm. so i I think uh, in part there was still kind of acclimatizing to you know having big publishers uh because i think previously some of the games had been from infograms and uh, atari and then this was kind of you know assimilating into the big company but yeah the the same as you mentioned coming in you've got a lot of people that come from the original driver team they've been there for 15 20 years you know they've worked on a lot of games had a lot of success equally and there's some of my friends i think i'll mention his name because i definitely know he'll listen to this uh one of my best friends called Stu. there was a whole bunch of us that were around that kind of similar age you know kind of early 20s their first kind of crack at the whip in the industry, have some kind of cool ideas, uh, banding together, you know, having a good kind of social life as well. Um, but, but at the same time, it was, you know, a bit business as usual in the office because, you know, Ubisoft had big expectations. And this was the Ubisoft before, you know, Assassin's Creed was out. You know, this was kind of the 2010s-ish. So maybe Assassin's Creed was just coming on the radar at that kind of point. And it was about getting the most out of the franchises that they had. And at that point... Rayman hadn't been re, you know, revitalized. You had the um, Rainbow Six games, Rainbow Six Vegas, around the same kind of period, and then you had Driver, and Driver was pretty much the only driving or racing game that they had in their, you know, kind of repertoire at that point. But yeah, all good. Kind of otherwise, it was it was a really good bunch, and um, I came in at the tail end of the project and managed to get my hands on, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff. It's interesting because Driver, you know, those original couple of games were very well received. We obviously had the uh, kind of controversy around, you know, Driver 3 and, you know, the reception on that as well. Was there any kind of like hangover from that still there? And was it kind of uh, perceived as a bit of a challenge to, because obviously Grand Theft Auto was a huge franchise, you know, to kind of reestablish credibility a bit? And how did it kind of go up against Grand Theft Auto? Yeah, that's it. I, th- I think, um, you know, probably the two sides of that was, I mean, definitely there's, that there was some kind of hangover from the previous one or, you know, the studio wanted to kind of prove themselves a little bit further. But at the same time, some people kind of forget that um, they did drive a, I think, Parallel Lines. I think that was on PSP. Yeah. That was on PSP. And that was actually a really good game, except that it was on PSP, so maybe it didn't get the, the kind of as broad an audience. So, so I think definitely there was a little bit of a hangover, not necessarily a, a negative resentment or anything, but it was more like a, we want to show people, you know, what we can do with the next game. And then the second part that was, I wouldn't necessarily say it was ever compared to Grand Theft Auto, or certainly not Driver San Francisco anyway, because Driver San Francisco was all about the the driving, the 70s kind of, you know, Hollywood aesthetic, recreating all driving challenges. And the shift mechanic, which is funnily enough, is something that ended up in Grand Theft Auto 5, 
that was something that already existed in Drive for San Francisco prior to that point. So I think there's there's probably some overlap, you know, in the, in some of the mechanics, but um, I think it intentionally tried to steer away from the the, f- the freedom of the city and the the kind of the crime aspect of GTA to mm. concentrate more on the driving experience, but mm. also allowing you to use as many cars as possible with the shift mechanic. So you could kind of zap out the car and just teleport into another one at will. And that was, uh, you know, pretty liberating for people. You know, those GTA comparisons were always made, but I think when we had Martin Edmondson on the podcast, he mentioned that, you know, Driver was actually doing that kind of open world exploratory thing before, Mm. (laughs) in 3D, before GTA was anyway. Yeah, that's that's it. I, I remember a f- funny act about Martin is um, every Friday we used to come into the studio and play whatever was the new game and just to see if there was any kind of overlap, you know, that kind of thing. You know, is there any comparisons with the Need for Speed franchise or the Grand Theft Auto franchise? And yeah, every Friday, I remember we used to come in, there was a group of us, uh, a group of designers. We used to have a big kind of 30, 40 inch screen of one of only two, I should add. <laughs> uh, and it was in our area. And uh, we would come in every morning and basically play whatever was the newest game you know the ps3 360 area at the time and martin would basically just come along and just chat with us and you know what do you think of this mechanic what do you think of that oh we did something like this on the old driver games it looks like they've repurposed it in this way so we we would always be having those kind of discussions but it's true sometimes though it's a bit like football where you know you don't remember what happened in the game you just remember the result if there's a franchise like gta that's going to get a billion dollars or something you're probably mm. going to forget where the original inspiration came from because the other product didn't get a billion dollars. So mm. it's kind of peaks and troughs for different projects. Yeah. Well, obviously, Martin's got a very you know long history in the industry. I mean, how did you find working with him then? Yeah, it was great. Again, another anecdote time. I forgot about this. So the Master System era, uh, the, the, when, I, when I chat to people and they say Dark Souls is a hard game, I always tell them, go play Shadow of the Beast and come back and tell me if you can survive for more than 30 <laughs> seconds and then, and, and, and then finding out that, you know, like, you know, I don't necessarily know if Martin had a hand in that kind of game, but around that kind of time, early reflections, um, that, that, that's that kind of era where they're coming from, which was, you know, building a studio from scratch, building all these different types of games, you know, before the driver uh, kind of point. But working with him, I, I wasn't working closely with him kind of day to day. But every now and then we would sit down, we would chat about some of the car mechanics, we would chat about some of the driving challenges. He would also be the first point of call that we would have if if we wanted to do a chase mission. So, you know, you're in the cop car chasing the bad guys. We would put the pad in his hand and say, you know, what do you think of this? You know, does it create the feeling that you're after? But yeah, that that was great. And as you said, you know, going back to the thing you alluded to earlier, for somebody that's 21, 22, coming straight out of the, you know, industry, coming straight out of university, their first job in industry, and you're working with people that have been on the games that have been pretty formative of your childhood, it was more intimidating than anything else. You just didn't want to disappoint them. Uh, so that that's the thing mm. I always had in the back of my mind. So you also worked on some uh, other huge kind of legacy franchises, if you will, you know, Far Cry, Rainbow Six, uh, The Division. You were, I think you, you were handing all of kind of those franchises at some point, you know, Far Cry 4 um, and Rainbow Six uh, Siege, wasn't it? What was that yep. experience like? You know, you, you've kind of, you've just mentioned it there, you know, you want to make sure you know, you're kind of impressing people because these are big franchises, you know, that you've kind of grown up with. Yeah, that's that's it. I, th- I think those ones came about is that I, uh, towards the end of my time at Ubisoft, I had a, 
a month, maybe six weeks, maybe more. Uh, mm. That was in Paris. So working directly in Paris, uh, what they had in Ubisoft is, is head office. And that's basically the place where, you know, it's the central point of contact for everything that happens in the company, what games are coming out, what the release schedule is, what the marketing plans are and things. So I, I was based in Paris and uh, on a daily basis, we would basically get moved from project to project to check the status of it, to provide okay. feedback, to chat with the lead designers. So yeah, I remember Rainbow Six Siege, and I'll, I'll claim it here because I've never mentioned this out loud before, but I will mention it. Is uh, so we were working on Rainbow Six Siege at the time, and we had a play test. And again, it's a big established franchise. You know, um, it, it's trying to make a new wave. You know, this was before the game came out, and we had all the the explosive kind of things that you could put on the walls and you could blow the doors in. And I remember at the time you could use about six of those at once, so you could get six people, six explosions to destroy effectively the entire building at once. Mm. And uh, we slowly but surely said, "Well, why don't we change it so that each individual." operator has their own specific equipment that is unique to them and then the week after that is basically what you have in the game right now is if you pick any of the operators the equipment that they get that came from that suggestion uh, because at the time it was like a shared pool of resources that they had but again it also harks back to something that they had on you know vegas uh you know pretty revered pretty hardcore kind of franchise the 360 ps3 kind of era and you don't want to kind of annoy the dedicated but kind of smaller community of that versus the large-scale kind of Call of Duty franchises. And it's the same as Far Cry. We were on Far Cry at the time. You've got this legacy of Far Cry being effectively the benchmark for any PC, uh, any you know draw distance, you know, graphical kind of settings, lighting, mm-hmm. shaders. But equally, it had to do it in such a way that it was going to you know respect the frame rate of the game, appreciate the types of new mechanics that they were putting in, you know, the draw distance, the new animals and so on. So a lot of it was looking at it from a, a critical kind of design perspective, but at the same time, just be memorable of like, just remind yourself of what's the type of things that made that game kind of popular in the first place and not steering away from that. So yeah, big, big challenges all around. Did you ever look back to some of the older titles? Because I mean, some like Far Cry, I mean, God, it's nearly, nearly 20 years old now, isn't it, that franchise? Yeah, and, and I suspect if you said Far Cry or, you know, maybe even the Crisis games, that they're probably tests on PCs still to this day. You know, if, yeah. in, in some cases, probably unoptimized more than anything else. Uh, but yeah, we, we did go back, but actually at the time, uh, part of the remit was not just looking at the past games, but similar games uh, from other you know, publishers or the developers that gave you the same sense of, of uh, you know, that, that feeling that you got in the game. So, for example, when you mentioned Far Cry, we actually looked a lot at the Skyrim, you know, at the time. Skyrim had came out mm. a couple of years before, and it was a totally different game, totally different era, but the sense of freedom, the sense that, you know, every, you know, co- every cause has an effect. You can play the game in different ways. You can play it stealthily. You can talk to people if you want. You know, these are all things that were present in Far Cry and they wanted to recreate that, but in a modern setting. And uh, 4 was the one in the Himalayas. So they also wanted the uh, the effects of weather as well. So if you go higher up, you know, maybe your breathing changes, maybe it affects like how cold your character is. I can't remember if many of these made their way into the game, but for example, Skyrim had already done something similar and it was kind of leveling up, you know, a bunch of these features that might have already existed in other games. That's awesome. So you ended up returning to Teesside as a lecturer after this. Was that in game design? 
Yeah, that that was it, and that that kind of you know came out out the blue. As I said, mm. I'm I'm from the northeast, so it was pretty mm. local. And the idea was is um we we wanted to kind of build and strengthen the links of you know new up and coming kind of talents in the industry. Um, not necessarily just for Ubisoft, which is also based in the northeast, but other studios. You know, like Sumo, who I'm working for at the moment, for example, is that we wanted to kind of grow the talent pool, but yeah. equally there was a whole bunch of stuff that we learned at Ubisoft and that's partially because Ubisoft had their own internal kind of training program and probably still does to this day, which is about here's the different ways that you can consider, you know, different behaviors in a game, how you look at different mechanics, how you can evaluate the competition. And basically it was just about bringing all that knowledge to the students, you know, at the time at Teesside University, this was on the game design course. And for three and a half years, um, you know, I can't remember the number of students, but it's probably in triple figures. Mm. And then a bunch of those are now in the industry, you know, all different companies all over the country. Um, so it's, it's pretty fulfilling, but it was a different experience to, yeah. you know, it, it, it being in the trenches working on a game. But but seeing somebody kind of take that nugget of a knowledge and kind of go on to progress into the industry, you know, is, is pretty, uh, it's pretty liberating as well. I was going to say my my next kind of question was going to be what was it like kind of paving the way and mentoring the next generation of game developers but I think you've just answered it there so um, is there any advice you would give somebody you know maybe a young person who's listening to the podcast today or just anything if you could go back in time and kind of tell yourself any advice you could give to somebody getting into the gaming industry games developing industry. Yeah, I mean, the one bit of advice I'd always say is that hard work is always going to kind of beat talent. Um, I, I don't know if you follow football, but I always like the football analogy of, mm. of kind of like a, a Frank Lampard where he's not necessarily born with the talent, but he works so harder than anybody else that he ends up breaking all these records and gets all these England caps and things. And I think that that's the kind of the way I look at games as well is you could have all this talent, you, you know, but p- people always want to work with good people who are dedicated, who want to turn up on time, who are, you know, critical about games, but equally, you know, appraise them in the right way as well. It's not all about saying, you know, that game from 20 years ago is terrible. There's always things that you can kind of take from it. The only other side of that is there is an advantage these days is that the time you didn't have many options for kind of creating your own games really, whereas now you can use Unity and Unreal and you can create a game, you know, from scratch in, in pretty much kind of no time. But equally, you've also got to put the time and the dedication into that. So yeah, my, my my advice would just be make sure you put the time into, you know, invest in breaking down games, mm. using the tool sets, basically investing in yourself to, to basically progress. Well, obviously you mentioned, you know, at the start that you're with CMI Digital now, and I know you're working on a, a lot of things you probably can't talk about on the yeah. podcast, but I mean, kind of outside of that, in terms of kind of retro stuff, kind of bringing it back to that, uh, to finish on, I mean, what's kind of your um, your current status in terms of retro then? Are you, are you interested in any kind of retro development? Are you, uh, do you have like retro collection of consoles? What's what's kind of your head at in, in terms of that these days? Yeah, re- retro-wise, I've, I've got a, uh, a backlog of things that I do want to get through. I've, I've played a lot of the Zelda games kind of over the years. Um, I was kind of late to the party with that um, for, for a few years that I'd, I'd played Ocarina, I'd played Majora's Mask. I've, I've only just completed Breath of the Wild last year. So there's a bunch of the older ones, Oracle of Ages, uh, Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, I do need to go back to, you know, some of the DS games. Um, but equally, the the Steam Deck has been a real game changer for me in the sense that I've got a, a huge Steam backlog of not just retro games, but kind of more modern stuff as well that I want to go back to. But also... 
the PlayStation Now streaming service has given access to PS2, PS1 games. Again, some of those I might have missed in the past. Some of those I, I, maybe I haven't. Um, and most recently, again, I, you know, there's the debate on one of the last episodes about is PS3 kind of retro now. So I've been yeah. currently playing uh, Everybody's Golf, the PS3 version, via PS Now streaming on the Steam Deck, uh, which is <laughs> pretty pretty crazy. Um, yeah, so I've, so I've been doing that, you know, going back to some older stuff. And as I said, there's a couple of franchises, Mario, Zelda, Professor Layton, and I think Phoenix Wright are a couple of kind of either blind spots for me or I've played a couple of the big hitters, but I've not played the kind of the, the, the unknown ones, you know, Mario, mm. Luigi, RPG and things like that. So I want to catch up with those. Yeah, it's definitely enough to keep you going for a good few years there, I think, isn't there? Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure, um, not only reminiscing with you, but also really interesting journey, you know, that you've had so far in the industry as well. So uh, best of luck with your career, and uh, thanks so much for coming on and uh, being our guest this week. It's been amazing to talk to you. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I really appreciate the time again, and uh, yeah, keep it up. I've got my morning walk still, so yeah, as long as you still churn out episodes, I'll still go on, work, on walks. <laughs> yeah, won't be long, so those mornings are a bit lighter, hopefully. <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> and, and warmer. 